This episode of Voices in AI is brought to you by Austin-based design consultancy Argo Design that gave us visions of the future like the ambulance drone, Wire One, the Echo Fresh Fridge, and Amazon Bin. Argo is shaping and designing for the new computing paradigm being ushered in by artificial intelligence. Learn more about Argo at argodesign.com. This is Voices in AI brought to you by GigaOM. I'm Byron Reese. Today, our guest is Daphne Kohler. She's the Chief Computing Officer over at Calico. She has a PhD in computer science from Stanford, which she must have liked a whole lot because she shortly thereafter became a professor there for 18 years. And it was during that time that she founded Coursera with Andrew Ng. She is a recipient of so many awards, I would do them an injustice to, to try to list them all. Two of them that just stick out are the Presidential Early Career Award for Scientists and Engineers and famously the MacArthur Foundation Fellowship. Welcome to the show, Daphne. Good to be here, Byron. Thank you for inviting me. I watched um, a number of your videos, and you do one interesting thing is you open up by, uh, by defining your terms often, and so that everybody had, as you say, a shared vocabulary. So what is artificial intelligence when you use that term? Well, I think artificial intelligence is one of the harder things to define, uh, because in many ways it's a moving target. Things that used to be considered artificial intelligence uh, 20 years ago are now considered so mundane that no one even thinks of them as artificial intelligence. For instance, optical character recognition. So um, there is the big lofty AI goal of general artificial intelligence, building a single agent that achieves human level type intelligence. But I actually think that artificial intelligence should and in many people's minds, I hope, still does encompass the very many things that five years ago would have been considered completely out of reach and now are becoming part of our day-to-day life. For instance, the ability to type a sentence in English and have it come out in Spanish or Chinese or even Swahili. So with regard to that, there, there isn't an agreed upon definition of intelligence to begin with. So what, what do you think of when you think of intelligence? Like, what is that then? And, and secondly, in what sense is it artificial? Is it artificial? Like artificial turf isn't really turf. It's, it's just pretends to be. Like, is artificial intelligence, do you think, actually intelligent? Or is it faux imitation intelligence? Boy, that's a really good question, Byron. So um, I think intelligence is a very broad spectrum that ranges from very common sense reasoning that people just take for granted to much more specialized uh, tasks that require what people might consider to be a deeper level of intelligence, but, um, but in many cases are actually simpler for a computer to do. Um, and I think we should have a broad umbrella of all of these as being manifestations of the phenomenon of intelligence. In terms of it being false intelligence, uh, no, I think our, what makes artificial intelligence artificial is that it's humanly constructed. That is, it didn't organically emerge as, uh, as a phenomenon, but rather we built it. Now, you could question whether the new machine learning techniques are in effect an organic growth. And I would say that you could make the case that if we build an architecture that you put it in the world as... Um, in this, with the same level of intelligence as a newborn infant, and it really learned to become intelligence, and maybe we shouldn't call it artificial intelligence at that point. Um, but I think 
arguably the reason for the use of the word artificial is because it's human constructed as opposed to biologically constructed. Interestingly, McCarthy, the man who coined the phrase, later regretted it. He, but, um, you know, and that, that actually brings to mind another question, which is when, when five scientists convened at Dartmouth for a summer in 1956 to, quote, solve the problem of artificial intelligence, uh, they really thought they could do it in a, a summer of hard work because they assumed that intelligence was like, you know, it, it, physical laws. We found just a few that, that explain all physical phenomenon and electricity, just a few, and magnetism, just a few. And there was a hope that intelligence was really something quite simple, you know, it, iteratively complex, but, but it had just a few overriding laws. Do we still think that? Do you think that is, or is is it is it not like that at all? It's, it's I, that was the day of logical AI, and I think people thought that one could reason about the world in using the rules of logic, where you have a whole bunch of facts that you know, um, you know. Dogs are mammals, Fido is a dog, therefore Fido is a mammal, and that all you would need is to write down uh, the, the, those facts and, and, the, and the laws of, of logic would then take care of the rest. I think we now understand that that is just not the case. Um, and that there's a lot of uh, complexity both on on the fact side and on how you synthesize those facts to create um, broader conclusions and how do you deal with the noise and so on and so forth. So I don't think anyone thinks that it's as simple as that. As to whether there is a single general architecture that in that you can embed all of intelligence in. I think some of the people who believe that deep neural networks are the solution to the future of AI would advocate that point of view. I'm, I'm agnostic about that. I, I personally think that that's probably not going to be quite there and you're probably going to need at least one or two other big ideas. Um, and then a heck of a lot of learning to sort of fine-tune parts of the model to very different use models in the same way that our visual system is quite different from our common sense reasoning system. And I, I do want to get on in a minute to kind of the here and now, but just, just in terms of kind of thinking through this a minute. So you, from what you just said, it sounds like you don't necessarily think that we are, that, that an AGI is actually something that we're on the way towards, we, you know, we can make 1% of it and just when algorithms get a little better and computers get a little faster and we get a little more data, we'll, we'll, we'll evolve our way there. It sounded like what you said is that there's some breakthrough that we need that we don't, we don't yet have. Am I, that, that AGI is something very different than the kind of, of weak AI we have today. Would you agree with that? I would agree with that. I wouldn't necessarily agree with the fact that we're not on the right path. I think there's been a huge amount of progress in the last, uh, not only in the last few years, but across the evolution of AI that is definitely putting us on the path there. I just think that we need additional major breakthroughs to get us there. So with regard to the human genome, um, you know, it's X number of billions of, of base pairs, which map to something like 700 meg. But most of that we share with all life, even like plants and you know, bananas and all of that. And if you look at the part that makes us different than, say, 
a bonobo or a chimp, it may only be half of 1%. So it may only be like three mag. So does that imply to you that to build an AGI, the code might be very, we're an AGI and we're built with, our intelligence is evidently built with three mag of code that, you know, that's how you build an AGI computer. Is that a useful or is that a fair way to think about it? Or is that apples and oranges in your, in your view? Boy, well, first of all, I think I would argue that a bonobo is actually quite intelligent and has a lot of the things that make us generally intelligent are shared with a bonobo. So their, you know, their visual system, their ability to manipulate objects, create tools, and so on, um, is something that certainly, um, uh, certainly we share with monkeys and, and fair, other. Fair enough. I think there but, is but, that piece yeah. of it. Um, I also think that there is an awful lot of complexity that happens as part of the learning process that we, as well as monkeys and other animals, go through as we encounter the world. It evolves our neural system. And so that part of it is something that emerges as well and could be shared. So I think it's more, it's more nuanced than that in terms so, of the number of bits. Right. So... You know, we have this brain, the only, you know, truly, you know, the only AGI that we know of. Um, and, and we, of course, don't know how our brains work. We really don't. Like, we can't even model a nematode worm's 302 neurons in a computer, let alone our 100 billion. And then we have something we call the mind, which is a set of capabilities the, uh, that the brain manifests that don't seem to be, just with the emphasis on seem to be derivable from uh, neurons firing. And then you have consciousness, which of course nobody purports to say they know exactly how it is that hydrogen came to name itself. Um, so does that imply to you, like, doesn't that suggest that you need to understand the mind and you need to understand consciousness to actually make something that is intelligent? And it will also need those things. You know, that's a question that artificial intelligence has struggled with a lot. Uh, what is the mind um, and to what extent does that emerge from neurons firing? And if you really dive into that question, it uh, starts to relate to the notion of soul and religion and all sorts of things that I am not sure I'm qualified to comment on. And most people wouldn't necessarily agree with the other's point of view on this anyway. Um, I think in, in this respect, there is, Turing had it right. I don't know what makes, I don't know that you're conscious. All I can see is your observed behavior. Um, and if you behave as if you're conscious, I take it on faith that you are. So if we build a general artificial intelligence that acts intelligent, that is able to interact with us, understand our emotions, express things that, look like disappointment or anger or frustration or joy, I think we should give it the benefit of the doubt that it has evolved a consciousness, regardless of our ability to understand how that came about. So tell, tell me about um, your, your newest gig, the Chief Computing Officer at Calico. Calico, on, according to their website, that they're aiming to devise interventions that slow aging and counteract age-related diseases. Um, what's, what's kind of your mission there within that? 
So I came on board uh, to create at Calico what you might call as a second pillar of Calico's efforts, one pillar being the science that we're doing here that drives uh, towards an understanding of the basic concepts of aging and the ability to turn that into therapeutics for aging and age-related diseases. But we all know that Biology, like many other disciplines, is turning into a data science where uh, we have, we being the community at large, has developed a remarkable range of technologies that can measure all sorts of things about biological systems from the most microscopic level all the way up to the organismal level. Um, interventions that allow us to perturb single uh, genes or even single nucleotides and how do you take uh, this enormity of data and really extract insights from it? <clears throat> Sorry, is, is, a, is a computational question. Um, and there need to be tools developed uh, to make this, uh, to, to do this. And this is not something that biologists can do on their own. It's also not something computer scientists can do on their own. Um, it requires a true partnership between those two communities working together to make sense of the data using computational techniques. And so what I'm building here at Calico is an organization within Calico that does exactly that in partnership with our uh, pre-existing world-class biology team. And what do you think there's broad consensus or any consensus about well, I guess there's two things. One, is there a consensus on what is possible? Like everybody believes we can, you know, do this eventually. And then there's uh, fundamentally, can you, can, do, do humans need to have a natural lifespan? Bigger questions like that. So what is it that we all kind of know we can do? Can we, we're going to be able to uh, better tailor medicines to people's genome? And, and so what are some of those things that are kind of like within sight? So I'm very excited about the, personalized medicine, precision medicine trajectory. I completely agree with you that that is on the horizon. I find it remarkably frustrating that we treat uh, people as a one size fits all. And, you know, patient walks into a doctor's office and there is a standard of care that was devised for a population of people, sometimes very different from the specifics of the person, even to the point that there is a whole bunch of treatments that were designed for largely based on a cohort of men. And you have a woman coming into the doctor's office and it might not work for her at all. Or similarly with people of different ethnic origins. I think that's clearly on the horizon and will happen, you know, gradually over the course of the coming years. Um, I think the ability to intelligently design medications in a way that is geared uh, towards uh, achieving particular biological effects that we're uh, able to detect using mechanisms like CRISPR, for instance, I think that. Um, uh, CRISPR, by the way, for those of you who have not heard of this, um, is, a, is a gene editing uh, system that was, uh, that was developed over the last five or ten years, probably more like five, um, and is remarkably 
able to do very targeted interventions in a genome and then one can measure the effects and say, oh, wait a minute, that achieved this phenotypic outcome. Let's now create a therapeutic around that. That therapeutic might be a drug or it could, as we get closer to viral therapies or even gene editing, uh, could be something that actually does the exact same thing that we did in the lab, but in the context of real patients. So that's another um, thing that is on the horizon. And all of this is something that requires a huge understanding and uh, of the amounts of data that are being created in the machine learning and a set of machine learning artificial intelligence tools. You know, prior to World War II, I, I, I read that we only had five medicines. You had quinine, you had penicillin, you had, well, you didn't have penicillin, you had aspirin, um, you had morphine, and they were all fortunately very inexpensive. And then, you know, Jonas Salk develops a Salk vaccine and they ask him who owns a patent and he says, there is no patent, you can't patent the sun. And so, you know, you get the Salk vaccine, so inexpensive. And then now though, we have, we have these issues that, you know, if you have hepatitis C and you need that full treatment, that $70,000, how are we not on a path to create ever more and more expensive uh, medications and therapies that uh, that will create a, a huge gulf between the haves and the have-nots? I think that's a very important uh, moral dilemma. I tend to be, rightly or wrongly, I guess, an optimist about this in that I think some medications are really expensive because we don't have productionized uh, processes for um, creating a medication we don't have and we certainly don't have productionized processes or even sort of a, a, a template for how to come up with a new medication uh, for for an indication that's discovered but as we have a and again I'm an optimist um, as we get a better understanding of uh, for instance the human genome uh, maybe the microbiome and how different aspects of that and the environment come together to create both uh, healthy and, and aberrant phenotypes, it will become easier to construct new drugs that are better able to, uh, to, to cure people. And as we get better at it, I hope that costs will come down. Now that's sort of a longer term solution. In the shorter term, I think that it's incumbent upon us as a society to help the have-nots who are sick to get access to the best medications um, that, uh, or at least to a certain common baseline of medications that are important to help people stay alive. And I think that that's a place where some societies do this well and others maybe not so well. And I don't think that's, I don't think that's fair. It's of course, you know, uh, there are more and more people that, that hit the age a hundred. Uh, but the number of super centurions, people who hit 110 seems stubbornly, stubbornly uh, fixed. I mean, like you can go to Wikipedia and read a list of all of them. And the number of people who hit 125 seems to be, uh, you know, zero. 130 zero. Why is it that we, why is it that that is, is, although we're kind of, the number of centurions goes way up and it's in the hundreds of thousands, 
the number of people who make it to 125 are, are zero. That's a topic that's been highly discussed very recently. There has been a series of uh, papers uh, that have, well, that have talked about this. Um, I think there is a number of hypotheses. One that I'm, I find compelling is that uh, what causes people to die in a certain time in history changes over time. I mean, there was a time not that long ago when women's lifespan was considerably shorter than that of men because many of them died in childbirth. So the average lifespan of a woman was very was relatively shorter. And then we uh, realized that we needed to sterilize uh, uh, the doctor's hands when they were delivering the baby, and now it's different. Um, we discovered antibiotics, which allowed us to uh, address many of the deaths that are uh, attributed to pathogens, and not all of them. Uh, AIDS was uh, a killer, and then we uh, invented retroviral therapy, which allows AIDS patients to live a much longer life. So over time, we get through additional bottlenecks that are killing people at later and later points in time. So right now, for instance, we don't have uh, a cure for Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and other forms of dementia. And that kills a lot of people. Um, it kills it at a much later age than, than they would have died from in, in earlier cases, uh, in earlier times in history. But I hope that at some point in the next, you know, 20 years, someone will discover a cure for Alzheimer's and then people will be able to live longer. So I think over time, we solve the thing that kills you next. And that allows a thing that's next down the line to kill you next. And then we go ahead and try and cure that one. You know, when you look at, at, the, at the task before you, if you're trying to do machine learning to help people live longer and healthier lives, it's gotta be frustrating that like all the data must be bad because um, and, and symptoms generally aren't recorded in a consistent way. No two people live exactly, you know, you don't have a control like, I twins, you know, five minutes into the world, uh, go down different paths. Everybody has different genomes. Everybody eats different food, breathes different air. Um, it, does that how how much of a hurdle is that to us being able to do really good machine learning on, say, things like nutrition, which seems, you know, it, it, we don't even know if eggs are good for you or bad for you, and uh, and those sorts of things. It's a huge hurdle, and I think it was one of the big obstacles to the advancement of machine learning in other domains up until relatively recently when uh, people were able to acquire enough data to get around that. So if you look at the earlier days, for instance, on computer vision, the data sets were tiny, um, and, my, and that's not that long ago. We're talking about a, less than a decade. You had a data set with a few hundred or a few thousand images was considered large. Um, and you couldn't do much machine learning on that because when you think about the variation of uh, a standard uh, category like whatever, a wedding banquet that ranges from a photo of a room full of people uh, milling around to someone cutting a wedding cake. And so the variability there is also extremely large. And if all you have is a you know, 20 images of a wedding banquet, you're not gonna get very far training on that. Now we have, the data is still as noisy or arguably even noisier when you download it from 
whatever Google Images or Flickr or such, but there's enough of it that you get to explore a sufficient part of the space for a machine learning algorithm so that you can not counteract the noise, but simply, you know, accommodate it as, um, or the variability rather, in your models. If we get enough data on the medical side, the hope is that we'll be able to get to a similar place where yes, the variability will remain, but if you have enough of the ethnic diversity and enough of the people's lifespan and, uh, sorry, lifestyle and so on, um, all represented in your data set, then that will allow us to address the variability. But that requires a major data collection effort. Um, and I think we have not done a very good job as a society of making that a priority to collect, consolidate, and to some extent clean medical data so that we can learn from it. The UK, for instance, uh, has a project that I think is really exciting. It's the UK Biobank project. It's 500,000 people that were genotyped, densely phenotyped. Um, their records are tied to the um, UK National Health Service that so you actually have ongoing outcome data for them. Um, it's still not perfect. It doesn't tell you what they eat every day, but they asked them that in the initial survey. So you get at least some visibility into that. I think it's an incredibly exciting project and we should have more of those um, that you know can don't necessarily have to use the exact same technique uh, that the UK Biobank is using. But the, if we have medical data for millions of people, we will be able to learn a lot more. Now, we all understand there's serious privacy issues there and we have to be really thoughtful about how to do this. But if you talk to your average patient, who's especially ones who are suffering from a devastating illness, you'll find that many of them are eager to share some information about their medical condition with others to the benefit of science so that we can learn how to treat their disease better, even if it doesn't benefit them because it might be too late, um, it will benefit others. So you just mentioned object recognition and of course humans do that so well. I could show you a, a photograph of a little tiki uh, statue or a raven or something and then you could instantly go through a bunch of photos and say, uh, and recognize it if it's underwater or if it's mm -hmm. dark or if it's on its side and all of that. Um, and, and I guess that's through transfer learning of some kind. How, mm -hmm. how far along are we, do we know how to do it and we just don't have the horsepower to do it? Or do we not really even understand how that works yet? Well, I think there, it's not that there is one way to do this. There is a number of techniques that have been developed for transfer learning. And I agree with you that transfer learning is, is hugely important. Um, but right now, if you look at uh, models like um, the computer vision inception network um, that Google has developed, there is a whole set of layers in that neural network that were um, devised based on a large category of web images. Um, that have a broad range of categories, but that same set of layers is now taken pre-trained and with a relatively small amount of training data, sometimes even as little as zero training examples, um, can be used for applications that was never intended for, like um, you know the retinopathy project, for instance, that, um, that they recently published. I think that's happening. Um, another example also from Google is in the machine translation realm, where they recently showed that you could 
uh, use a, a network architecture to, tr to translate between two languages for which you didn't have any examples of those two languages together, that the machine was effectively creating an interlingua um, on its own, so that you were translating a sentence in Thai into this interlingua and then producing a sentence in Swahili as an output, and you've never seen a pair of sentences in Thai and Swahili together. So I think we're already seeing examples of transfer learning emerging in the context of specific domains. I think that's incredibly exciting. You mentioned CRISPR-Cas9 a few minutes ago. And of course, it comes with the, the possibility of actually changing genes in a way that, that alters um, the, 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 the line, right, where the children and the grandchildren and all of that have this new altered gene state. There's no legislative or ruling body that, that has any authority or over any of that. Like, any Casper's cheap, and so couldn't it kind of anybody do that? Well, I think that's a very I, I agree with you. There's a very serious um, ethical set of ethical questions there that we need to start thinking about seriously. So, in some ways, when people talk to me about oh, we need to come up with legislation regarding the you know the future of ai and the ethical treatment of artificially intelligence agents artificially intelligent agents i tell them we have a good long time to think about that i you know i'm not saying we shouldn't think about it but it's not like it's a burning question i think this is a much more burning question and it comes up on editing of the human genome and i think it comes up at least as much in how do we prevent uh, threats like someone recreating smallpox um, and I because that's not CRISPR that's DNA synthesis but that too is a technology that's here so um, I think that's a, a set of serious questions that the government ought to be thinking about and and I know that there is some movement towards that but I think we're behind the curve there behind the curve in terms of we're behind we, we, we need to we need to catch up yeah, technology has overtaken our, uh, our thinking about the legal and ethical aspects of this. Um, but, but like, I mean, CRISPR would let you do transgenesis on a human. You know, you could take a, yeah. a, a, a gene from the, something that glows in the dark and make a human that glows in the dark in theory. And, and it, it, I mean, we are undoubtedly on the, the road to being able to use those technologies to do for, for them to be able to use in horrific ways very inexpensively. And I, it's just hard to think, like, even if one nation um, passed, you know, great legislation for it, it doesn't mean that it, it couldn't be done by somebody else. Like, is there, is it an intractable problem? So, look, I think um, all technology can be used for good or evil, or most technology can be used for good or evil. And we have successfully, I would say, largely successfully navigated threats that are also quite significant, like the threat of a nuclear holocaust. I mean, nuclear technology is another one of those examples that it can be used for good, has been used for good. It could also be used for to great harm. We have not yet, fortunately, had a dirty bomb blow up in Manhattan and making all of Manhattan radioactive. And I'm hopeful that will never happen. Um, 
So I don't, I'm not telling you I have the solution to this, but I think that as a society, we should figure out what is morally permissible and what is not, and then really try and uh, put in guardrails, both in terms of social norms, as well as in terms of uh, legal and enforcement questions to try and prevent uh, nations or individuals from doing things that we would consider to be horrific. And I'm not sure we have consensus of society on what would be horrific. Is it horrific to genetically engineer a child that has a uh, mutation that's going to make their life untenable and, or cut short after a matter of months um, and make them better? I would say a lot of people would think that's totally fine. I think that's totally fine. Is it as permissible to make your child have superhuman vision, great muscle strength, stamina, and so on? I think that's in the gray zone. Is it permissible to make your child grow in, glow in the dark? Uh, you know, yeah, Mark, that's, that's, that's getting beyond the pale, right? And so I think that, but those are discussions that we're not really having as a society, and we should be. Yeah, and the tricky thing is there's not agreement on whether you should use transgenesis on seeds. You know, you put vitamin A in, in rice and, you know, you make, uh, and you can in vitamin A deficiency and, or, or diminish it. And, and we, we don't even seem to be able to get agreement on whether you should even do that. Yeah, you know, I find uh, people's attitudes here to be somewhat irrational in the sense that We've been doing genetic engineering on plants for a very long time. We've just been doing it the hard way. Um, most of the food that we eat comes from species of plants that don't naturally grow in the wild. They have been very carefully bred um, to have specific characteristics in terms of resistance to uh, certain kinds of pests and growing in conditions that require hardier plants and so on and so forth. So we've been genetically engineering plants by very carefully interbreeding them and even, you know, uh, doing various other things to create the kinds of food that, for whatever reason, we prefer. Um, tomatoes that don't spoil when you ship them in the bowels of a ship for three weeks. Um, so the fact that we're now doing it more easily doesn't make it worse. Um, in fact, you could argue that it might make it more targeted um, and have fewer side effects. I think when it comes to engineering other things, it becomes much more problematic and you really need to think through the consequences of genetic engineering on a human or genetic engineering on a bug. Yeah, it used to be that um, genetic engineering, when x-rays came out, they would take a bunch of seeds and they would irradiate them and then they would plant them and very few would grow and then a few would grow poorly. And maybe every now and then you would get some improvement. And that was, that was like the technique for much of the produce we eat today. Indeed. And you don't know what the irradiation did beyond the stuff that we can observe phenotypically as in it grows better. And so all of these things that are happening to all those other genes went unobserved and unmeasured. And now you're doing a much more precision intervention in just changing the one gene that you know you care about. And for, someone, for whatever reason, some people view that as being inferior. And I think that's a little bit of a misunderstanding on what it exactly happened before and is happening now. So it used to be that the phrase cure aging was um, 
would be, would be looked at nonsensically. Is that really something that is a, is a valid concept that we may be able to do? So we do not use the term cure aging uh, at Calico. What we view ourselves as doing is increasing health span, which is the uh, amount of time that you live as a healthy, happy, productive human being. Um, and so I think that we as a society have been increasing health span for a very long time. I've talked talk about examples in the past. Um, I don't think that we are on the path to letting people live forever. Some people might think that's, uh, that's an achievable goal, but I think it's definitely a worthy goal to make it so that you live healthy longer. Um, and you don't have people who spend 20 years of their lives in, uh, in, uh, a nursing home being cared for by others because they're unable to care for themselves. And I think that's a very important goal for us as a society, uh, both for the people themselves, for their families, but also in terms of the cost that we incur as a society uh, in, in supporting that level of care. Well, obviously you've had a, a great impact, you know, presumably two ways. One with um, what you've done to promote uh, education and democratizing that, and then what what you're doing in health. What what are your what are your goals? What do you hope to do? What do you hope to accomplish uh, in in the field? Like, what how do you want to be remembered as? Uh, so let's see. Um, I think there's a number of answers that I could give to that question at different levels. Um, at one level, I would like to be not the only one by any stretch, because there's a whole community of us working here, but um, as one of the people that really brought together two fields that are, uh, in, it, it's critical that we bring together. So the field of machine learning and the field of biology and really turning biology into a data science. I think that's um, a hugely important thing because it is not possible even today and certainly going forward to make sense of the data that is being accumulated using simple statistical methods. You really need to, to build much deeper models. Um, another level of answer is that um, I would like to do something that made a difference to the lives of individual people. One of the things that I really loved about the work that we did at Coursera was the daily deluge, if you will, of um, learner stories of people who say, my life have been, has been transformed by the access to education that I would never have had before. And by doing that, I am now employed and can feed my children, and I was not able to do that before, for instance. Um, and so to me, if we can get, if I can help get us to the point where I get an email from someone who says, I had gen a genetic disposition that would have made me, die of Alzheimer's at an early age, but you were able to help create technology that allowed me to avoid that. 
to me, that would be incredibly fulfilling. Now, that is a very aspirational goal, and I'm not assuming that uh, that it's necessarily achievable by me. And uh, well, even if it's achievable, will definitely involve the work of many others. Um, but that, I think, is what we should aspire to. What I aspire to. You know, you you mentioned um, the importance of merging machine learning with these other fields. And Pedro Domingo, who actually was on the show uh, not long ago, wrote a book called The Master Algorithm, where he proposes that there, there must exist a master algorithm that can solve all different kinds of problems, whether, you know, that unite the symbolists and the Bayesians and, and all of the different, what he calls tribes. Do you, do you think that such a thing is likely to exist? And do you think that neural nets may be that, a, a kind of a one-size-fits-all kind of solution to problems? I think neural nets are a very powerful technology and they certainly help address um, to a certain extent a very large bottleneck which is um, how do you construct a meaningful set of features in domains where it's really hard for people to sort of extract those and and uh, and solve problems really well um, and I think their development especially over the last few years uh, when combined with large data and, and the power of uh, really high-end computing has been transformative to the field. Do I think they are the universal architecture? I, not as of now. I think that there's going to be, and we discussed this earlier, um, a, a, at least one or two big things that would need to be added on top of that. I wish I knew what they were, but I don't think we're quite there yet. So you're walking on a beach and you find a, a lamp, you rub the lamp, out pops a genie. The genie says, I will give you one of the following three things. I will give you new cunning and brilliant algorithms that solve all kinds of problems in more efficient ways, or I will give you an enormous amount of data that's cleaned and, uh, and, and accurate and structured or I'll give you computers that are vastly faster, just way beyond the, the speed of what we have now. What would you choose? Um, data. I would choose data. And that's a reflection of how, what, it sounded like when I, when I set that question up earlier about, you know, oh, data's like so hard. You were like, tell me about it. So that is kind of like the, the daily challenge because I know my doctor still keeps everything on those vanilla folders that have three you know, letters from, from my last name. And I think, wow, that's it. That's what's going to be driving the future. So uh, that, that is it, your bottleneck, huh? I think it, it, really, it really is the bottleneck. And it's not even just a matter of, you know, digitizing the records that are there. Um, which, by the way, it's not just a matter of their being kept in manila folders, it's also a matter of the extent to which different doctors write things in different ways, and some of them don't write things at all, and and just leave it to memory and, and, and so on. But I think even beyond that, there's all the stuff that's not currently being measured. Um, and I think we're starting to see some 
glimmers of light in certain ways. So for instance, I'm excited by the use of wearable devices to measure things like people's walking pace and, and uh, activity and so on, because I think that provides us with a really interesting window on daily activity, whereas otherwise people see the doctor, you know, once a year or once every five years sometimes, and that really doesn't give us a lot of visibility into um, what's going on with their lives the rest of the time. So I think there's paths forward on the data collection, but, um, but if you gave me a really beautiful, large, clean data set that had, you know, genetics and phenotypes and molecular biomarkers like gene expression and, uh, and uh, proteomics and so on and so forth. I'm not saying I have the algorithms today that allow me to make sense of all of that, but uh, boy, there is a lot that we can do with that even today, and it would spur the development of really amazing creative algorithms. I think we don't lack creativity in algorithms. There's a lot that would need to happen, but I think we are in many cases stymied by the lack of availability in data as well as just the amount of time and effort in terms of grunge work that's required to clean what's there. So there's a lot of fear wrapped up uh, in, in some people about artificial intelligence and, and just to set the question out, there's, you know, three views and specifically its effect on employment. And there's three reviews as you know there's one group of people who think we're going to enter into something like a permanent great depression where there's people that don't have the skills to compete against uh, you know um, machines then there are those who believe actually all of us are, there's nothing a machine can do can't do eventually and it, once they can learn to do things faster than we can they'll take every job and then there's a third camp of people who say look every time we've had disruptive technologies even electricity and steam power and machines people just use those to increase their productivity and that's how we got a rising standard of living which of those three camps or a fourth one uh do you identify with uh i probably would place myself and again i tend to be an optimist and so factor that in but i would place myself probably more in the third camp which is to say each time that we've had a revolution, it has spurred productivity and people migrated from one job category into another job category that uh, basically moved them in some ways, in many cases, further up the food chain. Um, uh, so I would hope that that would be the case here. Our standard of living will go up and people will do jobs that are different. Um, I do see the case of people saying that, you know, this revolution is different because over time, a larger and larger fraction of jobs will uh, disappear and the number of jobs that are left will diminish. That is, you just won't need that many people to do stuff. Now, again, from the optimist's perspective, um, if we really have machines that do everything from, you know, grow crops to package them and put them in supermarkets and, and so on and are, you know, basically take care of, uh, of all of the mundane day-to-day -day stuff that we need to exist, arguably you could imagine that 
a lot of us will live a life of partial leisure and um and that will allow us to at least exist and have food and water and and some level of healthcare and education and so on without having to work um and we will spend our time being creative and being artisans again or something um i which of those is going to be the case i think is an interesting question and i don't have i don't have a firm opinion on that so you know i i followed with a lot of interest um watson's when they took you know the, the cancer cases and the the, the treatments that, that uh, oncologists gave and then Watson was able to match them in, you know, 90 some odd percent of the time and offer new ones because it read all of these journals and so forth. So that's a case of using artificial intelligence for treatment. But is, is, is treatment really fundamentally a much easier problem to solve than diagnosis? Because diagnosis is really, you know, my eyes water when I eat potato chips and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not very structured data. I think that if you look back at some of the, even in the mid 90s, which is a long ways back now, there were diagnostic models that were actually pretty darn good. Um, and I don't, uh, and you know, people moved away from that partly because to really scale those out and make those robust, you just needed a lot more data and and also I think there is societal obstacles to the adoption of fully automated diagnosis. I think that's actually a, an even more fundamental problem is the extent to which doctors, patients, insurance companies are willing to take a diagnosis that's provided by a computer. I don't think fundamentally from a technological perspective that is a, an unsolvable problem. So is diagnosis the case where an expert system, I think that's what you were alluding to, that, you know, how do you tell the difference between a cold and the flu? Well, you know, do they have a fever? Do they have aches and pains? This, this, this. Is that a set of problems which you would use relatively older technologies to build all that out? And I mean, even, even if we don't switch to that, being able to have access to just that knowledge base in some parts of the world is, is a huge step forward. I would agree. Uh, by the way, when I'm the thing I was thinking back on is not the earliest uh, version of expert systems, which were all rule based, but rather the ones that came later, uh, which used a probabilistic model that really incorporated things like the chances of you know this of a certain thing manifesting in a somewhat different way, and you know, and if you have this predisposing factor, like if you visited uh, a country that has SARS recently, then maybe that changes the probability that you what you have is not the cold or the flu but rather something worse and so all that needs to be built into the model and the probabilistic models really did accommodate that and are easily in fact there's a lot of technology that um that was that's already in place for how to incorporate machine learning so that you can make those models better and better over time so i think that's an area that one could easily go back to and construct technology that would be hugely impactful, especially in parts of the world where they lack access to good medical care because there just aren't enough doctors per capita or the doctors are all concentrated in big cities and you have people who are living in some rural village and can't get to see a doctor. So I agree with you that there is a huge uh, possibility there. I think there's also a huge possibility in 
in um, treatment of chronic care patients because those are ones that consume a huge fraction of the resources of what a doctor of a doctor's time and and there just aren't enough hours in the day for a doctor to see people as frequently as might be beneficial for keeping track of whether they're deteriorating so maybe by the time they come and see the doctor six months later their condition has already deteriorated to the and maybe if it had been caught earlier we could have slowed that down by changing treatment so i think that um, I think there's a lot of opportunities to apply a combination of modeling and um, and machine learning in medical care that will really help make people's lives better. So I see we're uh, almost out of time, so I have just two more questions for you. First, what is something that looks to you like the kind of problem in health that machine learning is going to be able to solve? Like, what's a breakthrough we can hope to pick up the newspaper and read in five years, something really potentially big that uh, that is within our grasp, just a little out of our reach? Well, I think one of the, I think there's a couple of areas that I see emerging that are quite, uh, that is already happening and you're starting to see that. Um, cancer, I think, is, uh, we talked earlier about the bottlenecks that, are uh, being addressed one one after the other, and you know we had antibiotics and and retrovirals and you know statins, and I think we're starting to see with areas like immune oncology, for instance, some actual cures for metastatic cancer, which in you know by and large is uncurable using standard methods. I mean, few exceptions, and I think that's a big area where I think it's really exciting. Um, I, I'm seeing some really interesting developments on things that are, you know, in the context of specific diseases that are more genetically oriented therapies, be it CRISPR, be it viral therapies. We're seeing some that are on the path to being uh, approved in the next few um, in the next few years, and so I think that's a place where, again, on the therapeutic side, um, there is a big uh, there is a big opportunity. Um, I think a third one is uh, the use of computers in the context of um, of image based diagnosis, and that's an area that I used to work in when I was uh, at Stanford where you show an image of, be it a tumor biopsy sample or radiology image or a 3D CAT scan of a patient, and they're able to discover things that are not, uh, not visible to a physician or maybe only to a small subset of truly expert physicians, most of whom, in, where in most cases, you're not going to be lucky enough to be the, you know, the one that they look at. So I think that's an area where we will also see big advancements. These are just three off the top of my head in the medical space, but I'm sure there's others. And the final question, um, you seem to be doing a whole lot of things. How do people kind of keep up with you? What's your social media of choice and so forth? Boy, uh, I'm not much of a social media person, maybe because I'm doing so many other things. So um, I think uh, most of my 
visibility happens through scientific publications and uh, and such as we develop new ideas uh, we subject them to peer review and when we're confident that we have something to say that's when we say it um, which I think is uh, is important because there is so much out there that I think people rush to talk about stuff that's half-baked not well vetted that there's a lot of unfortunately somewhat bogus science out there not to mention bogus news and i think if we had less uh less stuff that was higher quality that so that we were not flooded with uh stuff of dubious uh correctness through which we had to sift I think we would all be better off. All righty. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. It was a fascinating hour. Thank you very much, Ryan. It was a pleasure for me too. Thank you. I would like to thank the sponsor of this episode, Argo Design. Argo is a product design consultancy, a growth partner to entrepreneurs, and an incubator of new experiences. Argo works with clients who share one common trait, the drive to create something innovative and valuable. Schedule a consultation or studio visit at Argo. Just email info at argodesign.com.